we're honored again on this Lord's Day to assemble and to gather in the way that we are, and we're delighted to be able to open the Word of God, to engage in these other activities of our worship, which the Bible has set before us. And as always, we're thankful that God has showered upon us the opportunity and the blessing to be here to play such as this one. As always, as we come to these questions and answers once, once a month, we are reminded that these are certainly matters which the, the assembly, the audience, you have enact, uh, made, in fact, selection of these. And so as we come to this introductory slide, may I simply say that the whole purpose of these questions and answers is in some ways a reminder of the conviction that we have in the Word of God, that it's not just a book among other books, but it is the book. And as such, it presents to us those matters which are worthy of our consideration and which addresses the matters that sometimes are incredibly intriguing. We have several questions tonight, and I have at this point several, of course, arranged. We will take care of them in the next lessons as well. This is by no means all the ones which I have. But the first question tonight reads like this one. What is the significance of the Catholic Rosary? If you're a bit unfamiliar with Catholicism, it may well be that the, the idea of the rosary is, is very unfamiliar. It may be, in fact, that some of the things we're about to share concerning it may be a bit new. But at least it's something, if you watch much television or in other ways see references that involve religious exposition, it may be that you hear that word or see others participating in it. So what is the Catholic rosary? I've invited you to notice several statements on that slide that's now before you. In a very basic way, the rosary is a scripture-based prayer. And by that I mean, as we shall see shortly, it is connected identically to various events set forward in the nature principally of the gospel accounts. According to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, there's a rather carefully prescribed way in which the rosary is to be prayed, and it has emphases that I have invi invited you to notice with me as follows. There seems to be an emphasis on a daily consideration of it. But that daily consideration, as we'll see shortly, it seems as if the period of the year does indicate rather significantly what would be the expected emphasis of that rosary. And so you'll notice near the bottom, there are four supposed mysteries which the Catholic Church desires to highlight in the rosary. Now, I'm going to try to state this in the way that they seemingly wish it described but you and I will have to make an, an observation of the Bible in just a moment. In terms of those mysteries, there are the joyful ones, the sorrowful ones, the glorious ones, and the luminous ones. And in each one of them, there are five particular events or teachings from the life of Christ which are emphasized in that section of the rosary. Let me briefly invite you to notice on the slide what they are. In the joyful set... There's emphasis laid upon the Annunciation. And remember, the Catholics place a great deal of emphasis on the reality of that announcement of the birth of Christ. Following that is the visitation in which, you may recall that visitation in which Mary visited Elizabeth, who, who of course, uh, that she also was pregnant with John the Baptist. There was the scene of the Nativity wherein the actual Christ was born, uh, certainly in Bethlehem, then there was the presentation in which Joseph and Mary brought him to the temple for the consecration uh, uh, areas. And finally, there was the scene when he was age 12 in which he was found at the temple. Now, those are the five 
joyful ones? What about the five sorrowful ones? Which again, a part of a section of the rosary. The agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. The scourging in which he was again beaten at the ordering of Pilate in John 19.1. The time when the crown of thorns was placed upon his head. The carrying of the cross. And finally, the scene of the crucifixion itself. Out beside each one of these, I tried to have listed the particular time or the day of the week in which there is supposed to be an emphasis in the rosary connected to this. And so on Monday and Saturday, as well as the Advent Sunday of Lent, the joyful ones should take priority. In terms of Tuesdays and Fridays and the Sundays otherwise of Lent, it should be the sorrowful ones. The third ones, the glorious ones, the scene of the resurrection, the scene of the ascension, the scene of the descent of the Holy Spirit, the character of the assumption, and finally, the coronation of Mary. Now that assumption, you and I would quickly call into question in terms of a biblical doctrine. There they place a spotlight on Mary and highlight the fact that upon her death, she was taken straight to heaven. Now that's what they say. That's what they teach. That's a highlight of the nature of that presentation. But the Bible, of course, nowhere says that. Finally, you'll notice the five luminous ones. By the way, I might mention that the glorious ones are to be the matters of emphases on Wednesdays and Sundays. And as far as the five luminous ones, the baptism of Christ, the turning of the water to wine at the scene of the wedding in Cana of Galilee, the proclamation of the kingdom is highlighted in Matthew 16, the scene of the transfiguration in Matthew 17, and finally the institution of what they call the Eucharist, we would claim the Lord's Supper, of course. But all of that does remind us, these are supposed to be elements of that Eucharist. I would be quick to say this. As I researched some of the features and the aspects of what is proclaimed relative to this rosary, it should be noted that the language is rather extreme in some instances and, and very direct. For instance, multiple times throughout that rosary, it is to be proclaimed, Hail Mary, Mother of God. I lost track of how many times that was supposed to be quoted, or at least affirmed. And you and I know that no such thing is taught in the Word of God. May I say in light of that, that when you and I give thought to appreciating the aspect and the trueness of prayer, as it relates to the revelation of the Bible, there's nothing wrong with that. But we must be a bit cautious, of course, in lifting high something that is called this rosary because it does strongly incorporate Catholic doctrine, which is not biblical doctrine. And as it incorporates it, it not only asserts it, but highlights it as a teaching methodology. One final thing I believe we could say, no Christian could pray the rosary in the way that the Catholics would encourage it to be prayed, and certain parts of it we'd have to leave out completely. Now, as far as the intended emphasis on the, the appreciation of the Word of God, uh, that, that's a delightful idea. And you and I would stamp a great appreciation to the banner of the truth of the Bible. But as far as that rosary, the way that at least very of its particulars are highlighted, that would not be a good idea to proclaim it that way. Question number two tonight is one that takes us in this direction. Another very good question. Why do Jews recognize the star of David? Shouldn't it be the star of Abraham, since God made him the father of many nations? Isn't that a good question? 
we all know that Judaism and the Jewish family in particular make a strong connection to, to the Star of David. In fact, that Star of David is the principal figure on the Israeli flag to our present day. But why is it at the Star of Abraham? Or why is it at some other connection to Abraham? Why David? Is there something in the Bible about that? Is there something about the issue of connection that would make that evident? Well, I believe there are several conclusions that are, that are rather evident. Let's see if we can step through them beginning near the top of that slide. As far as I was able to tell, the actual reference to this Star of David seemed to take center stage beginning only about the 17th century. So that's only a few hundred years ago now. And so we do not find any connection directly to a statement or verse or passage in the Bible about the Star of David. That's something much more recent than this. But you might begin to know, why David? Why not Abraham? Isn't it true? And the person who wrote the question did a marvelous thing in calling to our attention Genesis twenty-two eighteen, in which God directly told Abraham, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And so isn't it true that he was the one proclaimed and New Testament Scripture fulfilled it? The father of many nations. Well, the bottom half of that slide will lead us to appreciate this. Would you be mindful with me about Abraham and who he was and who descended from him? Was it only the Jews that descended from him? No, the answer is no. In fact, you and I remember that Abraham had a number of children and the first was Ishmael, from which the Muslims come. If you were to make highlighted appreciation to something connecting you to Abraham, the Muslims would be able to use it, the Moabites would be able to use it, the Ammonites would be able to use it, the Jews would be able to use it. There was a lot of people descended through, through the loins of Abraham because those two, namely Ishmael and Isaac, weren't the only ones. According to Genesis 25, verses 1 through 4, Abraham had a number of other children, six of them in fact, through another woman named Keturah. So isn't it true that all of those descended from every one of them, I just noted, all have acquaintance and assertion and connection to Abraham. But the Jews, of course, want to appreciate their singular identity through Jacob. And hence, they fix on the renowned leader of David. You may note near the bottom, I list for you in Genesis 25, the names of those other sons of Abraham. You perhaps recognize the first two, but the latter ones, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua, though perhaps less known to us, may we never forget that according to the biblical record, many peoples descended through them as well. So I hope that that particular observation helps us see that the Jews would not want something identifying them at least immediately to Abraham by itself, for that would easily be able to include lots of other people they wouldn't want included. They don't want to be connected to the Muslims or connected to the other peoples in that way. They want a unique charter and a unique arrangement that links them to their heritage only and, in fact, to, to their particular history. Question number three. This question is one that I will simply bring before you in the following way. I finish up on that slide that's down before you, that remaining conclusion 
and the observation that we had made about that second question. But as far as question number three, is it okay to attend denominational events if my friend invites me? Isn't that a good question? No, you and I may well have acquaintance or friends who themselves aren't members of the Lord's church, but they are perhaps convicted members of a denomination. And in so doing, maybe they extend an invitation to you or me that we might attend one of their events or services. May we do that? And if so, what might need to be understood about it? First of all, as you begin at the top of that, could I offer the thought? The person who wrote the question didn't invite us to consider perhaps particulars connected to it. And so in light of that, I might say, there are many things I would think that should be carefully considered in light of a question such as this one. So let me at least address a few of them so that we are quite, quite frankly at least aware of the basis and the foundation from which we can springboard. First, it is never, ever okay to absent the services of the Lord's church to attend any denominational event. It would never be okay. The reason, again, due to the platform of the text read earlier in Matthew 15, as well as the Lord's assertion in John chapter 4, verse 24. There you're now commanded to worship the Lord in truth and in spirit. And in fact, to engage in any other attribute connected to worship would itself not thus be a correct worship. It's vain worship, the Lord said. So it would never be okay to purposefully and deliberately not attend the services of the Lord's church to attend something like this. But let's face it, the event denominationally could be on a Tuesday night or perhaps a Sunday afternoon or something. Would it ever be okay? The first thing we might notice, there may well be opportunities to engage in conversation or studies with someone, and they may well say, I'll attend your service if you would come to something related to ours, if it does not require that you absent one of the assemblies of the Lord's church, would it be okay to go? I would think the answer is probably yes, but only under these qualifications. First, the person would need to know that you are not going there to participate in the act of worship. If the service on a Tuesday night or perhaps a Friday or some such thing as that, if it is intended for worship, it would need to be made clear you're not going there to worship. You're going to perhaps observe. You are going to, in fact, become better acquainted with what is taught or at least the order of what's done, but you're not going to worship. After all, if you plant the seed in the other person's mind, it may present a hardship for ever studying with them in the future because if they're led to believe that what they've done is right, that may be a difficult hurdle to cross at some point, ever convincing them. With that said, on the slide I invited you to notice, isn't it true that there are some things that you and I noticed that were accused even of Jesus as well as the other biblical characters and we know they weren't doing anything wrong. But sometimes those accusations were thus a bit misdirected. If you and I were to attend such an event, merely to observe, to gain a person's confidence to where you might be able to have a more thorough study with them, or to invite them in a more directed way to share elements of the truth, that certainly would be something that I would say would also demand this. 
You need to make sure your faith is strong enough so that whatever is taking place there, you wouldn't be swayed and you would not be led to appreciate at least some connection to a more greater way of moving aside from the truth. It would have to be an element of strength. But as far as, uh, as, far as observation, I don't see anything biblically would be wrong with this. It would be fair to say near the bottom that some of the accusations made of Jesus and of some of the other Bible characters would perhaps remind us of this. Wasn't it true that Paul frequently visited the synagogues, though he had left behind Judaism, and though he no longer taught that as the way of connection to God, he was more than quick to go and use that as a venue to connect to those who would be a hopeful audience in regard to the matters of truth. Not only that, you may remember other events and episodes wherein Paul would visit those locations in which he would find there those who at least were of a religious mindset and that they could be taught and that they could, in fact, be moved in the way that was right. So as long as it does not interfere with one's rightful service of God by way of the truth of the Bible, and as long as one is not swayed into anything related to that which would take place from a statement of continuing pursuit, it doesn't seem to me that it would be by itself something that would be amiss. Just again, make sure that those who are aware of you being with them and visiting understand it's not an issue of your participation by approval. What about question number four tonight? Question number four relates to angels. This question is worded as follows. What types of angels are mentioned in the Bible? And what are the differences among them? Another interesting and very good question. What about the variety of angels that are addressed and mentioned and spoken about in the Bible? At this point, I have invited you to step through some of the features on that slide with me. It may be that the definitive statement would be found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. That is the closing verse in that chapter. Allow me to read it. And then let's not only reflect on it, but let's also step from there into a host of other observations that will follow me. Speaking of angels, the text says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? One of the first things we then learn is these angels are spirit beings and they are those who minister on the part of the God of heaven to those that are the godly. The way that text words it again, those who shall be heirs of salvation. So we have this dramatic statement and how rather powerful it is. But with that identification concerning angels, we first learn they are not eternal like God is. They were created. Psalm 148 teaches us that. In the wording of that text of Psalm 148, we seem to learn that they were created fairly early on day one. In addition to that observation, we learned that they're powerful beings. Hebrews 2.7 seems to specify how far above man they are in power. And there were a few instances of the Old Testament when it would appear that we get a glimpse of some of the power to which they had access. As far as the number of them, the number is vast. Revelation 5.11 says that it's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands now, the latter part of that seemingly expands that to a rather general but exceedingly large number. 
We don't know exactly how many, but there are a lot of angels. More to the point, what are the kinds or types of them? The person who wrote the question worded it, what types of angels are mentioned in the Bible? At this point, it's a bit fantastic to note what I invite you to consider with me near the bottom of that slide. There is a hierarchy of the angels. That seems rather clear. More than one text apparently identify that there's an order, that is to say, a, a, an estate that went with each one. So maybe there's a group of angels that are lower in hierarchy or lower on the consideration of authority than others. And then there are other angels who are called chief angels. That's the very wording in the original language. Most of the time, the King James writers put it as archangel. Now, those chief angels, you and I get a glimpse of some of them by name. The Bible tells us some of them. Michael is called an archangel in Jude verse 9. That would seemingly suggest that Michael occupies a place rather high on the consideration of authority and on the consideration of those that would be subject to him. I might say in that light as well, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be the voice of the archangel. So apparently a chief angel is going to herald the second coming of Christ as a rather notable event the entire globe is going to appreciate and recognize immediately. That gives us some impression of the kind of stance, apparently, or the kind of place that an archangel might in fact have. When you step beyond that, however, the Word of God does seemingly give us a lot of details about the specifics of what those other estates would be. I'm going to list for you some possibilities. In Isaiah chapter 6, there is reference to a seraphim, the only time in the Bible that, that, they, that they in fact appear. The seraphim. Well, who were they and what did they do? And in what context do we see them? You might recall that's the impressive chapter wherein the call of Isaiah takes place. He is anointed, if you please, and becomes the great prophet of God. Well, notice a seraphim is a part of that vision that Isaiah saw. What did he see? He saw these seraphim encircling the throne of God. And their sole purpose, at least as that chapter delivered it, is what I invited you to, to appreciate here. First, note the name. The word seraphim means literally the fiery ones or the burning ones. Did they appear to Isaiah in some form to be burning like creatures? Those that appeared like flames or with a greatness and brilliance connected to that? The name seems to suggest it, but I might say beyond it. They flew around the throne of God, and they solely did this. They proclaimed the holiness of God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And I find it interesting that later in the Revelation, the four living creatures heralded the same thing. Were they also seraphim? The Revelation just calls them living creatures, but the connection surely seems to be strong. I might say even beyond that, one other thing about those seraphim, you recall that they did act in a role of cleansing Isaiah. Remember, a coal of fire was placed on his tongue, and the seraphim did that. And it was what yielded, or at least resulted in, his 
sanctification, equipping him to the ministry. Now, other than that, we don't know anything more about these seraphim. But the next category I chose to list were the cherubim. Now, we too encounter them very often in the Old Testament. If for no other reason, you might recall that the temple had them plastered almost everywhere. And you may recall that on the Ark of the Covenant, there were two of them. On the mercy seat, which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, two cherubim faced one another, and they were emblematic of the very nature of God's presence. But otherwise, those are only a few of the places we encounter them. After the sin of Adam and Eve, what was placed at the entrance of the garden to protect the way of the tree of life? Wasn't it the cherubim? Beyond that, I would say this. We are told something about in the book of Ezekiel about these things. And so in Ezekiel chapter 1, would you be impressed with me that the cherubim had four faces, four of them. One of them was like the face of a man, one the face of a lion, one the face of an ox, and one the face of an eagle. And they appeared to face in each of the four cardinal directions. And yet this image, this kind of creature is one that Ezekiel heralded more than once in that book. And it's a bit interesting to appreciate, again, a reference later to something similar enough to it, that maybe that's what we're dealing with in terms of some of the hierarchy of the angels. As far as what they did, every time we see them, they were drawing praise to God, highlighting some of the features, recognizing the nature of the adoration of the God of heaven. I did mention the living creatures because, again, it seems from the Revelation they are so strongly connected in some way to the seraphim. Don't know that that's the case. The word isn't used in the Revelation, but it surely is difficult not to miss. I might say in light of those things, at least that gives us some impression about some of what the Bible says about angels or angelic-like creatures. But I would say it also does this. Question number five is also about angels. And that one is worded like this. Can we entertain angels today? I suppose there have been instances prompted maybe by some of the elements of television programs which may have brought that at least to mind. You remember some of the rather popular TV programs. I don't know of any direct ones today, but certainly in days gone by, Programs like Touched by an Angel. You might remember that program. It was rather popular, at least at one time. And in other programs which had as their main matter some angel in which he went about or she went about doing what was upright and helpful and generous and good. Can we entertain angels today? Let's step through that by noting a few of the issues, perhaps starting in Hebrews 13 too. I suspect it may be, though the person who wrote the question didn't mention it that way, but maybe this verse is the one that makes us ponder this. That verse reads as follows, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So the Hebrew writer pointed out in that passage, Don't you be slack, or at least don't you be unappreciative of the fact to entertain strangers because some, not knowing it, entertained angels that way. 
So is that maybe making us ponder, can we today entertain angels? Well, on that slide, you'll notice a few features. First, I would suggest that that seems to direct, though the text doesn't mention it directly, it takes us in our mind back to the scene of the book of Genesis. What took place in Genesis 18 and then again in Genesis 19? Wasn't it true that Abraham, you might recall, that he entertained angels? They came by his tent. Abraham, in fact, desired to share a meal with them. But one of the things that might be noted about that scenario is that Abraham apparently knew who they were. He understood by some of the wordings that he, that he stated on that occasion, he understood the particular character of these visitors. But I would say, what about the next chapter? You might recall that Abraham had a nephew named Lot. There were angelic visitors that came to Lot, in fact, urging him, hasting him out of Sodom so that he would not be destroyed by it. Now, there's no indication that Lot knew who they were. I don't find anything in that particular chapter that would make me think that Lot was very knowledgeable of who they were. So could this perhaps be a reminder that here were two instances in the Old Testament when there were those, one who did, but one who didn't know who they were, but they entertained angels. What about today? If that be the backdrop or the setting for the idea of Hebrews 13 too, what about today? You may notice about the middle of that slide, it's certainly interesting to appreciate that we now ask this question. We are taught in Hebrews 1.14, as we read earlier, that these angels are ministering spirits for those who are heirs of salvation. So in some way, they offer help or support. Do they do it here on earth in the form of persons, in the person of individuals that you and I may encounter? have conversation with, and otherwise interact with. There's no indication in the New Testament of that. We don't have any teaching to that end. As you go back to the verse before us, if this is the one that's our springboard, what does it say? Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Should it be true that a Christian is hospitable? That is, should we offer support and help to the disadvantaged? to those that the Bible would recognize as strangers. We do offer benevolence to those that may not be directly strong acquaintances of ours, but we're mindful of their circumstances. Do we offer hospitality? Absolutely. One of the qualifications of an elder is that man must be given to hospitality. Now, that again doesn't just limit it to us who are members of their flock. But again, it's a reminder of the consideration that there are those who need the help that a Christian can offer. Now, that part of the verse is, again, a strong matter for our thinking. It's only the second part that then reads like this. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And I find no New Testament passages, examples, texts, or otherwise that would lead us to think that God allows or at least permits that kind of behavior today. Because isn't it true that what we are learning about the angels from various New Testament passages would take you near the bottom of that slide? We do know that there were certain ways in which God interacted with the human family in days gone by. There were prophets, 
There were those who had particular miraculous and spiritual gifts, but those things are gone. We are not in such a position to appreciate them in activity today. Well, what about angels? We do know that they're ministering spirits, but it would be a step beyond what we do know to say that they're here among us in a direct form in which we could visualize and observe and interact with them that way. We are taught, of course, that in Matthew 22, they are beings that are quite different from us. You and I know they don't marry. You and I know that they occupy a realm very different from our own. But they in some way do the bidding of God. They serve to carry out His wishes. But there's no indication that those TV programs that you and I may have heard about or witnessed, that things behave in exactly that way today. They serve those who are the heirs of salvation. I wonder how many things, though, in the heavenly realm they take care of, affording some means of helpfulness to you and me. Though they don't appear here perhaps in presence, how many other things do they have a part in in carrying out God's will that help you and I be faithful, that help you and I not fall into circumstances that would trouble us in some way? You and I have been greatly blessed. It surely is something to ponder maybe how often that may be happening every day. That fifth question is the last one that we'll have the time to consider this evening. But as we close this particular series of questions and answers, could we just summarize it like this? We began by reflecting on that question involving the Catholic Rosary. And then from that, we sprang board into the Star of David. And that challenged us to reflect upon not only Abraham and what distinguishes the Jews from merely his children in general, but it also prompted us to think about denominational events and how we must recognize the Lord's teaching on that point. Finally, the last two questions dealt with angels. I hope that our consideration of these, as always, is a matter of encouragement and a matter that reminds us about the nature of the Bible. As I mentioned earlier, there are more questions to come, and next month we will look at another session involving Bible questions and answers. As always, there could be an opportunity for you and me as we examine ourselves and find ourselves not in the faith. We might be prompted in urgency to do about something about that here in just a matter of moments. Brother Joy has chosen a song of encouragement. And if you aren't right with the Lord, if things are amiss in your life, prompted maybe by choices that you entered into fully well knowing they were unwise, but now the bitter fruits of them have brought about matters in life that are not only challenging, but they're hurtful. You need to do something about that. You need the Lord's strength. You need that which He offers you. Won't you come back to Him in, 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 in your love tonight, directing your attention that would demand repentance on your part, a confession of things done amiss, but we would be honored, and the Lord would be honored as well to welcome you home. It could also be that if you've never become a Christian, you've never known the joy and the promise and the reward that goes with being a faithful child of God, aren't you excited about the thought? Aren't you excited about what eternity that would hold? We tonight could not only enjoy the observation of your becoming a Christian, but we could celebrate with you. We could absolutely rejoice with you. 
that would require that you believe in Jesus. And it must be a full belief in the words of John 8, 24, that He is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that He died for your sins. As it includes those elements, it would prompt you in a way of repentance in light of those sins in your life with a mental effort to commit them no more, a turning aside from them. The confession which you would then utter that you fully believe in Jesus as the Messiah would direct and lead you through the remainder of your days. And then we would happily baptize you into Christ. And as that baptism takes place, the Lord washes your sins away and you rise a new creature in Christ. At that point, as you walk faithfully until death, you too would enjoy the precious promise that goes with what the Lord promises those that are His children. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance to anyone, we invite you to come at once while we stand and while we sing.